thanks for joining us here today at Victory Church, where we invite people to belong before they believe. If you want to know more about who we are and what we do, or if any of our messages have impacted your life and you would like to partner with us in giving to this ministry, we invite you to do so by visiting our website at victory.church. Now, let's check out this week's message. Hey, Victory Church, man, what an honor to be with you. I want to welcome everybody online, everybody at Edmond. Y'all be seated, okay? That guy can talk. Boy, how do you do that every weekend? You know, like I'm, I told Tab this morning, I'm glad I put my padded shoes on, you know? I was going to wear my cooler preaching shoes that have, you know, no soul in them. I'll say this. I think um, um, as it relates to Victory Church, one of my claim to fame in life is going to be that I introduced your pastor to the shoes that he now loves, okay? So those really cool boots that he wears, I get to take honor for, uh, to, uh, credit for that, okay? So any of you that go to Israel, you're going you're gonna to see them everywhere. It's a special kind of boot. It's called the Blundstone. They're the most comfortable shoes you will ever put on your feet. And so he loved them so much, he bought like three pair of them, you know? So I should start getting some kind of a kickback, I think, for something like this. But I'm just really glad to be with you guys. I've just heard so much about your church, uh, being friends with John and Michelle and um, connected to them in the Gateway world. You know, we serve on a lead team together at Gateway of ministries that are reaching out of Gateway to touch the world. And I lead one, as he mentioned, called the Gateway Center for Israel. Uh, John leads the King's University. And so we get to work together a lot um, on some fun and exciting stuff. And just so grateful for his friendship and, uh, you know, when, when we were bringing uh, the ministry I used to lead into Gateway, uh, John was one of the first real relationships that I was able to make at Gateway and just was so welcoming to me and to Tabitha and their, their, uh, Michelle as well. So we just really love your pastors. And I know you probably get to hear people come and talk about how great they are a lot, but it's all legit, okay? I've, I've been in another country with them, okay? You want to see what someone is like, put them on an airplane for 16 hours with a bunch of Jewish people, okay, and that don't really mind personal space, and then get them on the other side of the world, and then get them real jet lagged, and then wake them up at six o'clock every morning to put them on a bus, make them walk 18,000 steps on their Fitbit every day, slam about three years worth of seminary information into their heads, and then have dinner with them every night and ask them how they're doing. So, this is, this is a really good opportunity to get a good window into the character of a person. And we, we're just so grateful to be able to do that with not just John and Michelle, but with Oscar and Tara and, and Wade and Christina and Dale and Barb as well. So uh, we're just so thankful that um, this has been put in the heart of your senior pastor. You know, we at Gateway feel that God has really blessed our church because just as John said, Pastor Robert made a commitment years ago that Gateway would be a church that honors and loves the Jewish people. And when I use the word blessed, I, I don't want to shortchange the meaning of that word. It's not about more money in our payroll or bigger buildings or anything like that. There is literally an enriching blessing that comes from getting to understand not just the Jewish foundations of your faith, not just partnering in taking the good news to the Jewish people and blessing Israel like it says in Genesis 12, there's an identity enrichment that takes place. And if you were here last week, Pastor Wade brought a great message called uh, It Matters Where You're Planted. And I'd encourage you to go watch that if you haven't. But I want to just tell you, it matters where the church is planted. 
It matters where you as a Gentile are planted, the soil in which you're planted. And for 2,000 years almost, the church just kind of got off course. And they began to come into this, I would say, a little arrogant of a theology to say, well, Israel's old, the Gentiles are in, and so the church now has replaced the Jewish people as God's new covenantal vehicle of redemption on the earth. I believe what God's doing now, especially in the wake of the Holocaust, is he's turning the heart of the church back to the Jewish people, to the elder son. There's a reconciliation taking place, and God is showing us as a Gentile church where we're planted, and where we're planted is, as John mentioned, in connected to this olive tree of Israel that Paul talks about in Romans 11 that goes down deep into the soil of the patriarchs, the promises God made to the Jewish people. We've been grafted into that. We aren't a new tree planted next to it or planted further down the road. And I really believe that so many of the, the not just the evangelical, but the Protestant church's issues with division, schisms, splitting, a lot of it can be solved if we just go back to this and we realize that we're not orphans. There's an orphan spirit in the Gentile church I mean, think about this. If you have a child, your firstborn child, right? And then you adopt another child, and that child says, firstborn's out, I'm in. It doesn't work, right? What do you think is going to happen to the spirit of the adopted child? There's going to be a, a division that takes place. So, so we're just passionate about seeing this healed, honestly. And we believe that it, it matters for the church and Israel we're on a converging destiny. We're, we're moving towards the return of Yeshua, of Jesus, and uh, he's the focal point for us. So I'm just so grateful that you guys are along for this journey. And, um, you know, <laughs> sometimes when people get real in love with Israel, they can maybe go a little too far. Uh, and I think that for some pastors, they stay away from this because uh, it can get a little weird. And this is where I just want to tell you and, and really reassure you today that as your church is taking its first step towards this, you had a Seder last night, you're looking at doing Israel tours. Again, this is a, a journey of discovery of who you are as a Gentile church attached to the nation of Israel for the sake of world redemption through Jesus the Messiah. He's the point of attachment. And so no one in here at all would expect you to be Jewish, act Jewish, talk Jewish, think Jewish. If you're Gentile, you're Gentile, okay? So yes, you can keep eating bacon. And some of you are holding your breath, you know. <laughs> oh, no. And, um, but, but it's important, okay? God created, literally, in the creative heart of God, he created Jew and Gentile. He, he saw in his wisdom that the, there was a need to create a distinction. Guess what else he created? Paul says this in Galatians 3.28, right? Male and female. It's important to retain a distinction between male and female. Guess what else he created? Day and night. I mean, look, y'all y'all live in Oklahoma City. I live in Dallas. Aren't you so glad that in August the sun goes down? I mean, really. You know? Like, it's 100 degrees outside, and then the sun goes down, and you're like, oh, man. I can put on my jacket. It's only 93 degrees outside. I'm so glad the sun went down. This is in the beauty of, of God's heart to create this distinction because he knows that one serves the other, serves the other, serves the other, until it's almost like you can't even see but there is a distinction still. So it's important to understand this, and I think where it really becomes, and where we're going to talk about today is 
that it comes out in understanding the life of Jesus, who was a Jewish man and is a Jewish man, will return a Jewish man, and we need to understand him so that we can know him better and we can understand our role to play as he's called us into it. So uh, it would be, I would shortchange you if I didn't tell you a good Jewish joke, okay? So three sons um, grew up, they left home, and they became successful. And so as they kind of reached the height of their careers, their mother was aging, and they decided to do something really nice to take care of their elderly mom. And so they got together one year, and they decided, okay, look, guys, let's all take turns. We're going to do something nice for our mom, and then we'll, we'll get together, you know, another time later and talk about it. So the first son, Melvin, he says, I've done something wonderful for our mother. Uh, as you know, she's lived in this tiny house her whole life. So I bought her this big, big home. We just built it and finished it. She moved in. I just got to tell you, I, I probably did the best for mom. So the second son, Moish, he says, well, you know, look, mom's house is great and everything, but she drives this terrible old car. And so I just went out and bought her the most expensive, nicest car possible. And she just said, oh, how much she loved it. So the third son, Marvin, he says, well, you know, our mother's blind and she can't read. And so um, what I've done is I spent the last year of my life training a special parrot and training it on all the knowledge of the scripture. And anytime she wants to know the scripture, all she has to do is tell that parrot, parrot, what does Psalm 19 say? And that parrot will start to recite the word of God to her. So the sons are good about themselves. So they each received a letter in the mail. And the first one came to Melvin, and he said, it's the mother said, Melvin, I love you so much. You're so thoughtful. You've built me this wonderful home, but the truth is it's so big, and I feel so lonely here, and so I, I'm, I'm just sad about it. So the second letter comes to Moish. Moish, thank you so much for this wonderful car, but as you know, I've gotten so old, and I can't see, and I don't have anyone to drive me around, so the car just sits in the driveway, and I feel so guilty owning it. So the third letter comes to Marvin, and the mother says, Marvin... You always knew me so well. You're my number one son. That bird you sent me, that chicken was delicious. <laughs> Poor Marvin. All right, today is Palm Sunday, and if you're unfamiliar with the Christian calendar, uh, if you grew up in a traditional church like I did, I grew up in the Catholic Church, you would know that this is about to be Holy Week. So we have Palm Sunday today, then we have Holy Thursday, which commemorates the Last Supper, then we have Good Friday, which uh, commemorates obviously Jesus' crucifixion, and then we're on our way to Easter. And so Holy Week is really a week of setting ourselves in expectation for what's going to happen on Easter, the remembrance of Jesus coming out of the grave, you know, crushing death against all odds and bringing hope to all of us. And so I want to just look today at Palm Sunday. I want to look at the last final days and week of Jesus's life. And I hope that um, it can give you a context for Jesus's life. And, it, and again, I hope that the takeaway here is that you'll understand Jesus better as your personal Messiah, and that you'll understand the scripture even better as well. So the title of my message today is Expecting the Messiah. So we're in, again, Holy Week. Palm Sunday is all about this crescendo of expectation that takes place. So let's take a look at it. John 12 says, six days before the Passover ceremony began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man, Lazarus, the man he raised from the dead. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. And they shouted, praise God. 
Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. So I've got a whiteboard up here because I'm going to share some information that's going to be a little foreign, and I don't want it to be too overwhelming for you. So John says that six days before the Passover, Jesus arrives in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. So for those of you who don't know, Passover is basically on the 14th and 15th of the Hebrew month of Nisan. Not like the Tokyo drifting kind of Nisan, the Hebrew, Hebrew Nisan, okay? So the month of Nisan, which is the month that we're in right now, today on the Hebrew calendar is the 15th of Nisan. That's why you see that massive moon outside last night and this morning. It's the, it's the Passover moon. It's the lunar calendar. So the, John says that six days before the Passover, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. So that would have put him in, in Jerusalem on the outside of town around the 8th or the ninth uh, of, of Nisan. So this is important because we're going to get to see th- the importance of the chronology of this. So this, a little bit of background, it says in Numbers 9, on the 14th day of this month, Nisan, beginning at sunset, the people of Israel are to observe the Passover according to all the rules and regulations for it. So this is an annual event. It takes place every year. Really, this is the number one biblical holiday in Jewish life. And even to this day, if you meet a Jewish person who's not even really religious, they're definitely going to have a Passover Seder. Uh, what we did last night, every Jew, almost every Jewish person around the world was doing that last night, having a Seder celebrating the Passover. And it's commemorating God taking the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. And as we remember them putting the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that death would pass over them. So this is one of three pilgrimage feasts on the Jewish calendar. There's seven biblical feasts, holidays, and so Passover is one of three what they're called uh, pilgrimage feasts. So that means that God told every Jewish male, you must appear before me at Passover, at Shavuot, which is Pentecost, comes 50 days after Passover, and at Tabernacles, or Sukkot, So three times a year, Jewish people had to go up to Jerusalem to the temple to present themselves to the Lord. So around the time of Jesus, Jerusalem was about 80,000 people. But during these three pilgrimage feasts, the population of the city, according to Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, could swell up to two million people. So people from all over the Roman Empire are coming to Jerusalem to fulfill the duty to have a Seder in the old city, in the city of Jerusalem, and to appear before the Lord. So I've got a uh, map that I want to show you guys, and we're going to just take a look at Jesus' journey of this. And um, Jesus, for those of you who don't know, spent about 70 to 80 percent of his ministry in the Galilee, okay? This is in northern, modern-day northern Israel, and of course we know he was, he was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth, this is where his family was from, and, and here on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, this is a Jewish region up here, and this is where Jesus spent about 70% of his life. So when he was coming to Jerusalem, the Bible says in Matthew 19, he says he left the Galilee for Jerusalem. Well, now we know why he left. Of course, we know he was going to fulfill what the Father had established, which was for him to die and then raise from the dead, but he was going because everyone was going. Everyone's going to Jerusalem. You have to if you're a male. So there's two routes that he could have taken. One is through the mountain ridges here in the mountains of Samaria. But for those of you who don't know, the Samarians, uh, the Samaritans, they were not Jewish. And at times they could be hostile. In fact, Jesus avoided going through there later in life. And uh, even though this was where he met the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And so he would have come down through here and he would have gone through the Jordan Valley. 
This is a Jewish area on this side. He would have crossed over the Jordan, come down here into Jericho, and then up to Jerusalem. And so um, this area is around 1,300 feet below sea level. Okay, the Sea of Galilee is about 600, 700 feet below sea level, and then it drops all the way down here, and then you'll see in a minute we go up to Jerusalem. So this is the route that Jesus takes, and on this route you have up here uh, the parable of the rich young ruler. Jesus reads the rich young ruler. This is where the children come. The disciples kind of shoo them away, and Jesus says, no, bring the children to me. He goes into Jericho, and uh, you remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man that Jesus wanted to see. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. So... Uh, that sycamore tree reportedly is still there. There is a sycamore tree there that the local people say, that's the tree Zacchaeus climbed up in. Uh, <laughs> who knows, right? And so then he, he, he heals a guy named Blind Bartimaeus, and then he makes his way up to Jerusalem. And so this is where we pick it up in John chapter 12. So um, first, though, again, I want you to make note of the crowds, okay? So Jesus leaves the Galilee. It says crowds follow him. Then it says this in Matthew 20. 29, as Jesus and the disciples left the city of Jericho, a huge crowd followed behind. Again, why would a crowd follow Jesus? Well, number one, uh, he was doing miracles, right? I mean, he was well known in the Galilee. He was, at this point in his life, he had raised some people from the dead. He had given sight to blind. He set free some, um, some people that were demon-possessed. And, but the other thing is, everyone's going. And think about it. If you got your choice to travel to Jerusalem, it's 100 miles, okay? If you got your choice to travel to Jerusalem like with your brother-in-law or with Jesus, I mean, which one are you going with, you know? <laughs> the guy that's healing people and like, you know, doing all these fun things, you know? Or someone from your family that, that you have to be around once a year at the holidays. So there's a whole bunch of people coming with Jesus up to Jerusalem. And so this is what the ascent into Jerusalem looks like from the city of Jericho. You can see it up here on the screen. So we start down here on the bottom, way down here. And you're making your way up to Jerusalem. So this is a distance of about 14, some say 18 miles, depending on where you are. And it's an ascent of 3,300 feet. This is a long journey. And, and it's not just like walking up a nice path. I mean, this is on the edge of cliffs. Uh, it's a desert. There's wolves out there. There's bandits out there. Um, they're cutting through areas of Samaria. And this is a treacherous journey. And so Jesus is making his way up. And now you can see why you know, the Psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent because you're going up to Jerusalem. You're singing these prayers as you're going up over this rugged terrain. And it, it took a healthy person around eight to nine hours uh, to do this. So it says in John eleven fifty five, it was now almost time for the Passover, the celebration of Passover, and many people from the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the cleansing ceremony before the Passover began. So the Jewish males had to come make an appointment, you know, with the Lord, appoint themselves before the Lord for these three pilgrimage feasts, but then they also came early so they could go through a, a ritual cleansing ceremony. John 12, 1, again, we read this before, six days before the Passover ceremonies began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. So again, this puts Jesus in Jerusalem on the 8th or the 9th of Nisan, and look what it says next. Jesus tells his disciples to go get a young donkey for him to ride on, which is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, anyone living in really the land of Israel at this time would know what that is. David put Solomon on a young colt and sent him into the city for his coronation. 
This to the Jewish people was well known as a sign that the Messiah will come, but he's going to come in a lowly nature, yet he's going to be very powerful. And he's going to subdue Israel's enemies and bring the kingdom on earth. And so when people see Jesus riding in on a donkey, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, there's Jesus. Why did he choose a donkey? I mean, I would have personally chose a black stallion. They knew. Oh, he's on a donkey. Whoa. Look what it says in Mark. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Palm branches. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So, Uh, Let me just draw you really quick what this looked like because over the next four or five days of Jesus's life He goes back and forth into Jerusalem. So, you know, he comes up from Jericho and he goes up into Jerusalem, so I'm going to just draw Jerusalem is going to be the star of David that's poorly drawn Okay, Jericho's out here. This is the Mount of Olives Mount of Olives Right here. This is this is around 2800 feet in elevation. This is around 2500 feet in elevation And this valley between them is about 2,200 feet in elevation, okay? And so Bethany is over here on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, and Jerusalem is up here. So Jesus is going back and forth. So he comes up here, and there's crowds that follow along with him, right? And and this is where he stays at Lazarus' house, and he's coming down, and he's going into Jerusalem, and this is where this Palm Sunday path is to this day, and, and Jesus goes and enters into Jerusalem, and um, the people are with him. Now, one of the things that's referenced in Mark, what we just read, is this idea of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So again, every Jewish person would know this scripture. It's out of Psalm 118, and it's a messianic psalm. This is something even last night, if you were at the Seder, I don't even remember, but Daniel, Dr. Daniel, quoted Psalm 118. Almost every Seder ends with Psalm 118. Why? Because it's looking for the Messiah. So this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, again, the people that Jesus was around understood there's something different about him and and they were declaring that he is the Messiah. So he's coming into Jerusalem, but the tone, it shifts. All of a sudden, we have all these crowds of people that have been with Jesus, they follow Jesus, they're excited about him to be the Messiah. Look what it says in Matthew 21. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was trembling with excitement saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and the people are looking kind of out their windows thinking, what is all this fanfare? Hey, that guy's riding on a donkey. Whoa, hold on a minute. Who is this guy? And they say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, from Galilee. See, Jesus hadn't spent that much time in Jerusalem. He did have some moments in his, in his upbringing, and of course he went for the pilgrimage feast every year, but he, he wasn't as widely known as he was in the Galilee where he spent 70 to 80% of his ministry. So he comes into Jerusalem, and everyone's kind of like, hmm. There's a shift in, in expectation, in expecting the Messiah to inspecting him. You see the difference there? The heart is open, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a phrase of welcoming. To all of a sudden he comes to Jerusalem and it's, now who's this guy? And look what happens. Jesus comes into 
Jerusalem on what date? We know by looking at the, cha- at the book of John, he comes in on the 10th of Nisan. This is when he enters into Jerusalem. And this begins about five days, four or five days of constant interaction with the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other religious leaders, the zealots. Uh, Jesus is constantly being questioned, inspected. Exodus 12, watch this. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, the month of Nisan, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. Do you remember what day Jesus came in to Jerusalem? The 10th of Nisan. You remember what day is lamb selection day? The 10th of Nisan. So get this. On the 10th of Nisan, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he begins four to five days of intense inspection from the religious leaders. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem was known for at the time? Remember David tended his flocks in Bethlehem? Raising sheep? Bethlehem was the place where many believe the sheep that were used in temple sacrifice were raised to be provided for atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. So here's the Lamb of God, born in Bethlehem, coming into the city on the 10th of Nisan, the lamb selection day when everyone in the city is selecting their lamb and then they're holding that lamb for four to five days and inspecting it. And Jesus spends 25% of the gospel account is the next five days of his life. Think about that. That's a lot of scripture. All happens in that last week of Jesus' life. So we get to this end, if you will, of all this inspection. And the, the religious leaders are trying to pin him, right? And, and he keeps kind of evading them. And so finally they get to the point, they say, okay, we essentially can't find anything wrong with the guy, so let's just arrest him and turn him over to the Romans. And so they, that's what happens. Jesus gets handed over to Pilate. You remember who's the, 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 the leading governor of the area of Israel at the time? And so look what Pilate says after questioning Jesus in Luke 23, 4. So Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. The next thing that happens is Jesus is led to be crucified. So the leading authority tells the religious leaders there is nothing wrong with this spotless lamb and he's then taken to be sacrificed. It's amazing the fulfillment of this. But think about this for a minute. This is where I want to dovetail our lives with this story. Where were the crowds? Where was the crowd that just four days earlier were taking their jackets off and throwing it on the feet of the donkey leading Jesus in, waving the palm branches, basically saying, you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah. Instead, if you remember what happens, Pilate takes Jesus out and there is a crowd out there But he says, okay, I find no fault in this man, so I'm going to release him. They say, we don't want you to release him. Okay, well, it's either him or this guy, Barabbas. And they say, we want Barabbas. Well, what am I supposed to do with him? Crucify him. Where did all the people go? 
John 12, 37 says, despite all the miraculous signs he had done, most of the people did not believe in him. And here's what I think happened. You have to put yourself in the shoes of people living in Jerusalem. The temple is there. They're ruled by the Romans who day and night are watching the coming and going of the Jewish people. The Jewish people have been under the subject of Rome. Before that, they were under the subject of Greeks, of the Greeks. Before that, the Babylonians. Before that, the Assyrians. They've been oppressed for hundreds of years and the, the collective thought process is the Pharisees' whole argument was if we can purify Judaism, the Messiah will come back and deliver us from all these enemies. But in order to purify Judaism, we have to create all these lists of rules, of things to do in order to avoid being at all unrighteous because God will not come back for us if we're unrighteous. And so they create this onerous set of lists of, of ways of living that begin to set the expectation for what the Messiah is going to look like. The Messiah is going to come and overthrow Rome. The Messiah is going to come and deliver us. And so when Jesus shows up and everyone's excited and then he rides into the city and he just goes back to Bethany... Jesus, no, you're supposed to lead us in taking down the Romans. I think this can happen to any of us that have been walking with Jesus. Or maybe we haven't been walking with Jesus. Maybe you've never walked with Jesus. You think about that. Who are the people who clearly saw he was the Messiah? They're the ones that spent time with him. He comes into Jerusalem and all of a sudden those people hadn't been around him. And it's like, hmm. But I think it can happen to any of us. Over time, we have a tendency to build up an expectation of what God's like, of who he is, and what he's supposed to do for us, and we can fall into this trap, like the Pharisees, of without even knowing it sometimes, of creating this list, this checklist of, okay, I did that, I did that, yep, I've done that, okay, all right, God, did everything, where's you, you gonna show up now and do what you told me you were gonna do? Oh, what happened? You know, I've got this example. Um, my wife, Tabitha, is here, and uh, I just have to say that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And there's like a finding a wife, you know, like a locating one. And then there's like finding out who your wife is. And I just have to say, I'm so grateful to have found my wife. Really, I mean that. And uh, so... I had to say that because I'm about to incriminate myself, okay? <sighs> so we go on, we go, you know, pre-COVID, we you know, go around the world and we minister to people. And um, I love to research stuff. I'm a chief inspector. And I love to research hotel properties because, hey, look, if I have a budget to spend, I'm going to maximize that. I'm going to go to the best place. And... Um, it's gotten to the point where, I mean, I read reviews, I look at pictures, you know, I'm, I'm studying everything about it. And whenever Tabitha has come with me in the past, there's been this sort of like, we enter into the room or we get to the property and she's almost kind of like, what's gonna happen? Because she's learned, uh, you know, this is where I've been a little immature and, and need to grow. She's learned that I can get disappointed really fast because I set my expectations way up here and then reality comes, and I just get tilted. I'm like, oh, man. <sighs> that was not how I expected it. This is not anything like I expected, or they didn't give me the room I wanted, or whatever. This is human nature, where when we're expecting something, we can start to get introspective and look too closely at it. So I want to just contrast this 
what happened with Jesus and just again wrap this all up so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and the crowds are just they don't he doesn't meet their expectations and um, he's riding down the Mount of Olives one day he's about to go to his he'd already been in the city and he's about to go to his crucifixion and he stops here on the Mount of Olives, and this is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And it says in Matthew uh, 29, you can put that up, I'll just read it from here. He says this, as he's looking at the city of Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is left to you empty and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the exact same phrase out of Psalm 118 that Jesus had just heard a few days earlier. And now all of a sudden he's saying, you, you missed your appointed time. And he's looking over the city and we've got a picture of it here. You can see what he's looking at when he's looking at the city. He's looking at this old city of Jerusalem and and this is the picture that everybody sees, okay? When you're, when you're in Israel, this is what you see. You're standing on the Mount of Olives. This is what Jesus would have saw. He's looking at the temple. He's looking at the walls of the city. This is the Garden of Gethsemane right down in front of him. And he's weeping. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, you missed your appointed time. And we believe today, those of us who are passionate about Israel and feel called to this, that we won't see Jesus again until the Jewish people realize that he is the Messiah until they do say this, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a Hebrew phrase, and if you go to Israel today, people will say it to you. Baruchim habaim, welcome everyone. That's what they say. Baruch b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is saying, you left, you wouldn't let me in, and now look, your house is left to you empty and desolate. And I just think of how often this can happen to any of us. You know, life goes on and we walk with the Lord for a while. And to be honest, life, life can be really painful. I mean, I, I feel like I've lived a pretty good life, but I've had a lot of pain and a lot of disappointment in life. And the, where I'm at today is not where I expected to be. <laughs> but it's good. It, I, I, I'm happy. But it wasn't, I had to deal with the change in the expectation of things that were happening in my life. And I had to navigate through that. And I just want to end today by looking at one of these examples uh, from Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, the rich young ruler. We all know the story of this guy. You know, he comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus tells him this list, right? Don't commit adultery, you know, uh, don't do this, don't do that. And the guy just enthusiastically says, I've done all of those things since I was a child. I've kept every commandment. And um, think about putting yourself in that shoe, in your, yourself in his shoes. You're thinking, yeah, Lord, I already did all that. All right, yeah, I check, 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 check. Okay, now can I have eternal life? <laughs> and he says, Jesus says, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. I think it can be easy sometimes to just put the rich young ruler in a box of, well, that's a wealthy person problem, you know? 
Yeah, if I had a mountain of money and somebody told me to come give it all to the poor, I'd probably have a problem. It would be hard for me to do that too. But the truth is, all of us are rich somewhere. And really, Jesus was just finding that one place in this man's life where he was still holding on. And he said, hey, I've done all the other things. And Jesus went right to the heart and said, but you haven't done that. And he said, that's too big for me. I can't do that. And he went away sad. Look what Jesus says. When Jesus saw that he went away sad, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus replied, what's impossible for people is possible with God. Now, there's been a lot of different teaching on what this means, going, a camel going through the eye of a needle. And one of the ones that's more commonly cited is that there was this gate in Jerusalem at the time, and people that traveled by camel had to get off the camel, and, you know, they called the little, there was a tiny gate, and they called it the eye of the needle, and the camel had to get down on its knees and humbly go through the gate, and the man had to go through the gate with it, and so there's this great humility of lowering yourself Well, I hate to debunk that, but there was never such a gate. It's a great sermon illustration, though. And this is what's important about connecting to understanding our Jewish foundation, is you get a better understanding of Scripture. And what Jesus is saying, when you look at this in a Jewish lens, is this. There's a writing of a rabbi and it isn't a commentary on this verse, but this was a phrase apparently that was used often in the Middle East at that time, especially in Jewish culture. And this is what the, re- the writing says. God said, open for me a door as big as a needle's eye, and I will open for you a door through which may enter tents and camels. Jesus was just saying, crack the door open to the rich young ruler. Open your heart to me. What's he saying as he's going down and seeing Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives? He's saying, open your heart to me. Yes, I'm not who you expected. I'm actually better than that. I'm bigger than your imagination. You think this is about Rome? This is about the world. There is a physical oppression, but you guys are all in bondage because you've got your nice, tidy checklists and you're living under this burden of trying to be accepted by God. All you have to do is crack the door open because what's impossible for you to even imagine is possible with God. And I feel like so many of us, I am am totally guilty of this. We have these places in our lives, like the rich young ruler, that are closed shut. A lot of times there are issues of the past from our family, there are issues that we've picked up along the journey of life, whether it's rejection or it's shame, maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's a coping issue that you've had because you have experienced success in life and you have become rich or you have become blessed or influential or something. Maybe it's your reputation and you're saying, I'm not opening that door. Why? Because I can't control what will happen if I open that door. All Jesus is saying is to crack it open. And he says, let God handle this. 
welcome me in and I'll take care of it. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes says this, to see what is right in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. <laughs> Sometimes the things that are right in front of us are like the hardest things to see. Sometimes the, whether it's, you know, your spouse or your kids, it can be hard to see what's right in front of you. And sometimes it's hard to even see the places in our hearts that are sealed shut. The places that were saying, God, you can, I've done all the things, but not that one. <laughs> I'm not opening that door. I'm not asking that person for forgiveness. I'm not forgiving that person. I don't want people to see that I have this issue because it would ruin me. Jesus is trying to accept the rich young ruler and give him eternal life. And so I just want to encourage you today, if you're here and you're breathing and you have a pulse, I guarantee you there's somewhere in your heart that's closed shut. Because again, things happen to us in life, right? Things wound us and it's just human nature to just put it down here, put it away, close the door act like it's not there. Dr. John Townsend says that when you bury feelings, they're buried alive. They'll come up and grab you at the time that you least expect it, manipulate you when you, when you don't know they're manipulating you and control your life and lead you to places you never wanted to go. And so I just want us to pray today <laughs> and ask the Lord, Lord, in this season of expectation, is there any place in my life that I've closed that I have a fear of opening to you. I just want to take a step of faith and trust you. And here's the thing. I feel like sometimes what happens is because we don't know the outcome, we don't know how something's going to get fixed, we don't know how our relationship is going to get mended, how us as a, as a married couple, how this is going to work out or how, how this situation is going to go, how am I going to get free of this, this addiction that I have? How am I, how am I going to have hope when I'm so depressed? So we just don't take the first step. And I believe that one of the most powerful things you can do is just say, I'm just going to do this. And then I'll let God lead me to the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and walk through. So I just want to encourage you today. We're going to end and we're going to pray and just open your heart. Every day that I wake up, I go for a walk, and, and one of my favorite things to do is just to hold my hands out as I'm walking down the street. I probably look like a weirdo to my neighbors. <laughs> I was going over the Scissor Tail Bridge this morning, over Interstate 44, I think, going like this. People passing by are probably like, what is this weirdo doing at sunrise? But you know what I was saying? Psalm 139, search me and know me. Point out anything in me that offends you, Lord, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So, Lord, we're all broken. We're all expecting. In this season of Easter, Lord, we're expecting you to deliver us. We're expecting new life. We're expecting areas of our life to be conquered by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I just pray you'd take that flashlight, Holy Spirit, 
just like David said in Psalm 139, and begin to point out in us any place where there's a closed door, where we're hiding something for fear of acceptance from you or other people. And Lord, give us the courage to take a first step because what is impossible for us to even comprehend it is possible for you. So help us, Holy Spirit, help us, God. Show us. Show us where we need to open the door to you. Maybe we've never even put our faith in you, Jesus. Maybe this whole church thing's new. Help us to open the door. Maybe we've been walking for you with you for years, Lord, and there's stuff in our soil of our heart that we know nothing about. Lord, I pray that you would gently show us where these are and give us a plan, a first step plan, whether it's to make an appointment with someone to talk to or to come down for ministry or to call someone and forgive them. Lord, you'll show us. So I pray you'd lead us and guide us in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us here today for this week's message. And here at Victory Church, we are called to equip people to live in His presence, move beyond ourselves, and be transformed. And this can only happen through your radical generosity, your serving, and your prayers. If this message or any of our messages have impacted your life and you would like to partner with us by giving into this ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at victory.church/give. Thank you again for joining us and have a great day.